Well, greetings, church, and welcome to another online service. So thankful that you're with us this week and excited for a time of worship, a time to get in God's Word. And so I invite you to really join in and engage with us, even starting now through song. sun and the moon like horses driven by kings you cover the mountains the valleys below with the breadth of your mighty wings all treasures of wisdom and things to be known are hidden inside of your You've asked me to be your friend. You asked me to be your friend. And you, you are my first, you are my last, you are my
Let's sing that one more time. And you, you are my first, you are my last, you are my future.
failures Bring your addictions Come lay them down at the foot of the cross Jesus is waiting God so loves the world Thank you so, so much, worship team. Hello, everyone out there online. It's so good to be with you. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. I have a couple of announcements. The first one is, man, how amazing is it that we have a God that bends down to listen to us when we, when we cry out to him, um, that we have this avenue of prayer to go before him. And man, we would just love to partner with you in prayer this week. Please text any prayer request to 97,000, and we'd love to pray for you this week. Hey, we've got so, so much going on here at the church. Go ahead and check out the website. We've got all events coming up. There's information about ministries, Bible studies, etc. Go to the website, check it all out. There's so much information on there for you. Also, uh, what you can do on the website, man, if you've been blessed by these messages and videos and services every week, and you'd consider uh, donating to the church, you can do that online through the Give tab. That would be amazing. All right, now as we get into a time in God's Word, let me pray for us and we'll dive in. Dear Lord, um, God, just thank you for who you are, for your character. Um, Lord, thank you that you've given us your Word um, for us to know you better. And Lord, I just pray that you'd use this time now, that you'd shape us, that you'd sharpen us, that you'd change us, Lord. We uh, genuinely come to you with open hands today and say, Lord, what do you want to say to us? So, Lord, we love you. We give you this time now. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, thank you, worship team, and thank you, Josh, uh, for leading us uh, so far in our time together. And excited to be uh, together in God's Word, and especially as we approach this season. We're getting so close to Easter, and I uh, wanted to pass on an invite. I know uh, that might be strange. Some of you are maybe watching this uh, past the point of uh, Easter. But if not, I did want to invite those who have been maybe away for a season uh, during this COVID stretch, the invitation to come back uh, to church. We'd love to see you on Easter and reestablishing some old patterns and habits in your life. We'd be thrilled to see you uh, next weekend. Well, wanted to uh, just spend some time here this week in a little bit uh, different, taking a little bit of a pause on the book of Hebrews. As you know, we've just been gradually working our way through the book and really seeing how Jesus is greater than everyone and everything. Just systematically, the author has done a wonderful job of breaking that down, and hopefully you've been blessed by that. But I was thinking about that with that in mind, I think it's only appropriate as we're going into the Passion Week or Holy Week, uh, you might call it. It'd be a good time to, to slow down and put our focus, put our attention, the spotlight, if you will, on Jesus Christ, on his final week before the crucifixion. I like the, I read the title of a book this past week. It says, uh, describe this week as the most important week of the most important person who ever lived. And that's really where we're trying to give our attention because it's a very important week and it's identified as an important week by how much attention it gets in the New Testament. You might not realize this, but out of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke spend 40% of their uh, letter or, or their description or summary just talking about these seven days. In the book of John, 
gives 66% of his book, of his writing, is about the Passion Week. So obviously, they're wanting to focus on this. And you might ask, why? Why so much attention is given to those seven days? And I would suggest that each author really has the same thing in mind. They're saying, if you're going to miss anything, don't let it be this. Because Jesus' entire life and ministry was all building towards this event, all building and building towards the cross, his ultimate sacrifice for the payment of our sins. Hopefully the backdrop of the sacrificial system we've been discussing in uh, the book of Hebrews and him being the perfect high priest is all starts to make sense when we look at the Passion Week. I've kind of broken this down and today here on Palm Sunday, we're going to spend time looking at Sunday through Wednesday. So Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of the Passion Week. Then on Good Friday, we're going to get a chance to focus a bit on Thursday and Friday. And then next Sunday on Easter itself, we're going to be looking at a bit at uh, day, uh, on the day Saturday and then celebrating uh, the seventh day on Sunday. So we're excited about that. And if you've never considered the chronology of events, man, they are so important, so dripping with significance, with meaning. I'm excited to dive into it, but let me first pray before we do. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this chance to gather around your word and to slow down in this season and celebrate what you've done for us the march that you made towards the cross intentionally for the rescue of mankind. I pray that as we look at these days and consider all that happened, we get a, a better glimpse of, of who you are, your character, your, your passion, your heart, your, your love for us is demonstrated in so many different ways. I pray that coming out of this, we'd even have a, a deeper understanding of your love. We invite this now in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, like I mentioned, we're just going to start, and it's not necessarily one passage in particular that we're working through. We're going to jump through a number of different passages that are the account of Jesus' life. And just a little disclaimer, I would say, I didn't realize this when I started this project in my study this week. I didn't realize that there's actually a decent amount of debate over the timeline of what took place on each of the days. What I'm sharing with you is probably a, a fairly a conservative uh, view, fairly common view, uh, but definitely some discussion about what took place on each one of uh, these days. Uh, if you do, if you are interested in the study, I can point you towards different resources. You can wrestle through it yourself. Even people that you uh, respect probably have some different opinions on some of these different things. It's actually surprisingly challenging to find something that has a summary of each specific day. But we're going to do that here in our time together, starting with Sunday. But before I can even get into that, I, I need to let you know kind of the tone of where things are at in Jesus's ministry. I would say that at this point in Jesus's public ministry, his uh, stardom, if you will, his popularity is at an all-time high. The people, the crowds, the, the, uh, the attention that he's getting, this is very soon after he raised Lazarus from the dead. So the, the buzz around town is all about Jesus Christ and who is this man? Is he the Messiah? They've all been waiting for. 
But at the exact same time, as he's popular with the people, he's disdained by the religious leaders. They are creatively trying to figure out as best as they can, how can they take Jesus out because he threatened everything they represented. They would have no job if he is the sacrifice that they're so desperate for. So at the same time that you have a popularity, you also have the, the tension. And in fact, the religious leaders have, for all intents and purposes, put out a, a warrant for his arrest. And so we're told in scripture at this stage of the game, he's kind of staying out of public arenas. Everybody knows, though, as they're uh, getting closer to the holiday, as they're getting closer to the Sabbath, that really there's a tension because they know that every Jew is expected to come to Jerusalem. And so you can't avoid that as a, as a, uh, as a Jew that's it's required of all adult men. And so there's this tension. What is Jesus going to do? Is he going to show up? What, what, if, it, if he does show up, it's almost certain death. But what they don't realize is that's always been Jesus' intention. He's been on a march towards the cross since the beginning. He takes time as we start looking at Sunday to make sure his disciples understand what exactly is going to take place. Jesus isn't caught off guard or surprised by any of this. Mark 10, 32 through 34 describes him talking to the disciples. He says, and, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid, realizing that this is a dangerous place they're heading towards. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So Jesus, very aware of his marching orders, where he's headed and making sure the disciples understand this. So Jesus, this is on Saturday night, arrives in Bethany. You might be familiar with the name of that town. It's a location where Lazarus was from and where Mary and Martha were at. So kind of the, some of Jesus' closest friends. It's about two miles outside of Jerusalem. So Saturday evening, he arrives there. And in that town, it's kind of cool to think about that after raising Lazarus from the dead, they throw this, this big dinner celebration for Jesus. In that celebration on Saturday night, he gives direction for the disciples to gather and to get a colt for him to ride into Jerusalem the following day. So I imagine word of that even got out, the buzz of what Jesus' plan was. Oh man, he's heading to Jerusalem. How is this going to play out? It's interesting though, even his choice, and maybe you've heard this before in the description, his choice of riding into Jerusalem on a colt said something. One, for someone that was coming as a king, they would come on a, a, a prancing stallion to demonstrate their, an act of war or, or coming in power or authority. But Jesus comes on a colt demonstrating for those people an act of peace not fulfilling exactly what they were hoping for was someone that would come and rescue them from Rome, but perfectly fulfilling 
what the Old Testament had described would happen with the Messiah. Zephaniah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey? So he's perfectly fulfilling prophecy in every single act now in these seven days. He's riding in, and it's interesting to see that morning, on Sunday morning, as he's coming into Jerusalem, the people's response. We saw, or we'll see on on Palm Sunday here in church with the kids waving the, the palm branches, what a cool experience that is. And that's really the picture of exactly how people were responding. Waving palm branches, which was a, a symbol of Jewish nationalism. It's kind of like waving a, an American flag present day, hoping that he's the king they've been waiting for. Luke 19 describes this entry into the city. It says, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I love his response, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. He understood what was going on here. They were announcing him as king. He understood it and so did his opposition. As Jesus approaches the city in the middle of this parade and honor, something interesting, I've actually taught on this before, something interesting in his response Most would think that if you saw a huge parade in your honor, you'd be pretty jazzed. You'd be feeling pretty good about yourself. But we're told in scripture, as Jesus approaches the city, that he actually wept for the city. He actually teared up how how he had had longed to see the city come to them. He, He saw directly past the cheers to what was actually going on in their heart. So often that's the case where people get excited about Jesus. They're like, yeah, yeah, Jesus. But then when it comes down to reality, their life never ever fully embraces him. That's what he saw in advance with this group of people. So he cries in response. Imagine that scene in the middle of this parade in his honor. So he has compassion for the people, desperate they would, that they would uh, respond to him. Instead, many of them a couple days later would be shouting, crucify him rather than worshiping him. He arrives in Jerusalem and it's kind of cool. I would say that this day was marked with compassion. First, compassion with his tears, but then compassion with his actions as well there on that Sunday. When he's in the temple itself, Matthew 21 describes it. It says, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But then the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant, and they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany Bethany, and lodged there. Think about that. I always think about how hard these 
hearts of these uh, religious leaders would have to be that they're seeing this. They're like, they're seeing them heal people. They're seeing this parade in their honor. They're seeing all of these signs and demonstrations of him not being just any ordinary God, but they're so resistant. I often wonder, what does somebody have to see? What do they have to experience for them to finally acknowledge and embrace Jesus as the Messiah? It's interesting, just a couple of weeks ago, my wife Adrian and I had a, a wonderful dinner with a, a couple that we had met uh, from playing pickleball here in the area, a Jewish couple, getting a chance to talk to them, and they're very intrigued and open to the idea of faith. And in the conversation, I, I said, man, if I could leave you with one exercise, I'm like, can you take a, a little bit of time and re read Isaiah 53? It's a beautiful description of the coming Messiah and consider the description and answer the question, which of these criteria are described here did Jesus not perfectly meet? You got to wonder, what will it take for someone to recognize who Jesus was? He must have been at his wit's end, all of the things that he demonstrated for them, but they're still resistant. So we're told that he heads back that evening to Bethany, again, where his close friends are at, to spend the night. The next day, Monday morning, these are the events that transpire. First, it describes him heading back towards Jerusalem. So another uh, trip, about a two-mile trip. He's, uh, Bethany's close to the uh, Mount, uh, Mount of Olives, so that's uh, something that they're familiar with. About the two-mile trek in, he's heading it, and it's interesting. We're told that he was hungry, and he passes by a fig tree, and the fig tree doesn't have any figs on it. It's interesting to see Jesus's response to this fig tree. He actually curses the fig tree for not producing fruit. You're just like, man, what is going on here? But the deeper you dig, you start to realize that there's significance in all of Jesus's actions this week. Often in scripture, throughout scripture, the, the, the nation of Israel is represented by the fig tree. It's interesting, his reminder to them of just, man, you've been given, you've been uh, planted, you've been watered, and yet you're still not producing fruit. So he uses this as a teachable moment for his disciples and those following him, and a reminder for us, there's a design and there's a purpose for each one of us. We're intended to bear fruit. We're intended to bear fruit. We're supposed to have fruit in your life. I remember when that first sunk in in my life. I don't know if maybe you had one of these aha moments, but I remember working up at a camp in northern Michigan. In that summer, uh, kind of pulling away from things, it was a wonderful opportunity. Got to see so many different kids that summer making first-time decisions for Christ. High schoolers pouring out their heart around the campfire and then making choices to embrace Jesus as their rescuer, as their savior. And I remember thinking, man, this is right in line with God's heart, God's design. And really it was in that summer that I really sensed God's call towards vocational ministry. But I think the call is significant for every single one of us towards a life of ministry, bearing fruit. Because if you think about it, if you're not impacting people for Jesus Christ, you gotta ask the question, what's the purpose of even being here? Is it to build a company? Is it to, uh, is to, it to expand uh, profit margins? Like really at the end of the day, what actually lasts in 10,000 years from now, what's still going to exist? It's only going to be the influence that you have on people 
for Jesus Christ. So he reminds them of this in this drastic demonstration. And he, I, don't, I always try to put myself in these scenes. I can't imagine looking at this tree that Jesus just cursed. And we're told that it immediately withers. I know when we had a, our uh, condo living in Agora Hills, one of the houses next to us had a fig tree. And a fig tree is not a small tree. So I'm just picturing him cursing this fig tree. And then we're told that it immediately withers. He's demonstrating his authority authority on this earth over nature, over mankind, over about to see over creation. And then as he arrives in the city, a lot of times people associate this event with happening on Palm Sunday, but most agree that it actually took place on Monday rather than in Sunday. He heads straight inside of the temple and he demonstrates his authority there as well. He demonstrates the fact that that he is in control of not just nature, but also in control of worship. So what does he do in the city? He confronts the, the people. So the people are there waiting for their rescue, but instead he points out their hypocrisy and their sin. You see, they had taken the, the temple rituals, the things that God had designed to, to keep them with an awareness of their sin, the things that were designed to, to come clean before God, and they had turned those into a money-making scheme. Two specific ways that they did this. One, the, the priests had predetermined which animals were clean for sacrifice, and you could buy those at a premium there in the market. The other thing where they were intended to bring a, 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 a financial sacrifice, but you couldn't just turn in the Roman coins. You had to exchange those coins for temple appropriate currency. So another money-making scheme. And so he drives out the money changers, the people selling doves. The, he, he, he's done with this uh, uh, perversion of the house of worship. And he reminds them in this interaction of what the intention was for the temple. He tells them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So, very hectic day in Jerusalem. A lot of tension, I imagine, a lot of engagement. Really, you see in that, that time there that there's a, a lot of people that are trying to get his attention, trying to get interactions with him, we're told. But there's little glimpses on, on Monday where you get a glimpse of Jesus's heart. And that's what I want to emphasize just as we're talking about that day. So lots of interactions, but little glimpses where you see Jesus's heart. I like one I wanted to point out was found in John chapter 12 on this Monday encounter. It says, John 12, 27, Jesus is in inner, shows his inner turmoil. He says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. I love this. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of the world be cast out. And I 
when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So again, more public affirmation of his deity with a a voice from heaven. You remember the first time that happened as a a voice in heaven when he was baptized. This, uh, This idea when he was brought out of the water, the transfiguration, unbelievable. You imagine people trying to make sense out of this saying, oh, I heard thunder. But he explains clearly that it was for their purpose, more confirmation that he was who he claimed to be. On this day, he was also very clear, not speaking in vague terms, but very clear how someone is rescued from darkness and brought into light. He explains in John 12, 44, just a few verses later from what we read. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. You can hear the agony in his voice, the the tone of, of, please, I'm begging for you. We should have a similar heart for people that are lost. Oh, please believe, please come to the one and only rescue that's offered through Jesus Christ. So this Monday was another full day in Jerusalem, demonstrating his, his authority over the material world and his authority to judge worship. He's pleading for the lost. Then he retreats again for the third day straight, where to? We're told back to Bethany. I do find some interest in that, that that's a destination every single day of the week, whether it's Mount of Olives, which was right next to Bethany, that he maybe spent the night, or Bethany itself with his friends. How important that is. I don't know if you've ever noticed the names of different churches, but sometimes that gets my attention and how often the name Bethany is used for a church. And really the intention and design of that is really God's heart for the church to be a place of refuge. After you're out and you're minister and caring for people and influencing people, there's the intention that the church is the place that you come back to a place where you're known, a place where you're loved, a place that you're built up and encouraged. This was Jesus's model that he set as an example for us and for us to follow. Breaks my heart when somebody only starts to see the church as an event to go to or a service to attend. You're so far missing out. He wants the church to be our Bethany what we come back to for refuge, what we come back to for encouragement. And so my hope is, even if there's one little piece that you take from that message, is for you to fight for that, to figure out what is your community? What is your group? And you might say to me, Pastor Scott, I just don't have that within the church. Well, fight for it. Put some work into it. Have somebody over for dinner. Have a family over. Engage. Choose to figure out who your tribe is and make that a priority in your life. Jesus did. So spends the night back on uh, Monday evening there. And then we're told heads back to Jerusalem on Tuesday. This is kind of an interesting day. I don't know if you grew up with this. The description of this day is I would describe it like a game that some of us that are older grew up with. It was called Pong. 
I don't know if you remember this. This is before Nintendo. This is before uh, uh, Atari. I mean, this is back in the old days. It was a game, very simple. And it just had these two paddles that you would actually try to block, kind of like the game of tennis, block this ball going back and forth. It's called Pong. It's just kind of who was smarter and who could be quicker. And really, I think of this day, this, this Tuesday, as the game of Pong, with Jesus engaging with the religious leaders of that time. You see, each one of them was giving their very best shot to back Jesus into a corner, to make him look foolish because he had made them look foolish on so many other occasions, exposing their hypocrisy. So on this Tuesday, he shows up. First off, on the way in, I thought it was kind of cool. The disciples make notice of this this uh, fig tree that has since completely died. And they're like, hey, there's that tree that Jesus cursed. Jesus uses that as another teaching example to remind them of the power that they have at their disposal through prayer, kind of setting a model for that. But then when he arrives in Jerusalem, it's game on. And he really, he pulls out all of his teaching tools, his parables, his illustrations, stories, examples, every possible attempt to satisfy their intellectual needs, he shows up with trying again to meet people exactly where they're at. So he has interactions with really all kinds of different groups uh, on the way there. First, the Pharisees and the Herodians try to trap him by asking him about paying taxes. You might remember that story. Then the Sadducees ask him about the resurrection. The scribes ask him about what is the greatest commandment. They're all trying to back him into a corner. But eventually, Jesus is kind of done with this. And I find it fascinating, his response in Matthew 23. He's done with the games and he confronts the religious leaders directly. Listen to his words here in Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew 23, verse 1. It says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. Wow. His audience must have had their jaws drop in response to this. Every single one of them knew this description of the religious leaders was accurate, but none of them would have ever dared to say it. Why? for fear for their lives. But Jesus is pulling all gloves off, not pulling back any punches. This is a time when he refers to them as whitewashed tombs. This is a, an intense interactions with him and the religious leaders, all stirring the pot and moving them towards more of a commitment to take his life. At the end of the afternoon there, we're told that he starts heading back to Bethany again, which is next to the Mount of Olives. And on that, uh, that walk back, he's got a huge crowd that's following him and he's teaching them all the whole trip back. 
different parables, a lot that you'd be familiar with. The parables of the two sons, the parable of the wine dresser, the parable of the wedding feast, the parable of the 10 virgins, the parable of the talents, the parable of the sheep and the goats, all of that's described as the Olivet Discourse. You can read about that in Mark chapter 13 in your own study this week if you'd like. Each of them trying to make an intellectual appeal for them to understand. He explained, he prophesied the uh, falling apart of, of Jerusalem, the takeover of it. He prophesied the, the end times. He prophesied the return of Jesus Christ. All of it pointing towards the intellect and hoping that something might click with these people. But see, they understood something that many have understood in years to come. He understood what many have understood, many missionaries have understood, is that it's not always about intellect that wins people to Christ. Remember some years back, my wife Adrian and I had an opportunity to go on a shorter uh, a, uh, missions trip to Dearborn, Michigan. And you might not be aware of this, but Dearborn, Michigan has the largest Muslim population of anywhere in the world outside of the Middle East. So we went there and they had worked with a missions organization that's d diligent and committed to trying to reach people with the love of Jesus Christ. And it was interesting as we're engaging with this missionary that had been doing it for years and years. He's like, you know what? I can give you lots of tips and conversation and conversations uh, starters and helpful tools for engagement. He said, but what I've concluded over the years is that it isn't an intellectual battle. It's a spiritual battle. There, there, there needs to be a, a, a blinders that come off in order for people to embrace and accept Jesus Christ. And so here, instead of embracing Jesus Christ, we're told in Mark chapter 14, verse one, that the religious leaders were frantically seeking how to arrest him by stealth and to kill him. So the intellectual appeal was not what actually reached these people. Most believe that this was the conclusion of Jesus's public teaching, which leads us to Wednesday, which will be the last day we look at here today. Wednesday is a day that's most likely, and we there's, as I mentioned at the beginning, there's some uh, differing opinions on this, but a day that's most likely marked by complete silence with Jesus's engagement in the city. I don't know if you ever do this, but after a tough conversation, you get back after the conversation and you start reflecting on things that were said in that engagement. Maybe it was an argument or a disagreement and you start reflecting on things and you start considering things that you said, things that the other person said. It's kind of a, a processing of what was heard, a reflection, if you will, which often allows, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, allows for the Holy Spirit to convict if there's something that needs to be changed, to stir you to or point you towards truth that was shared. Here's what I would describe as what has happened here collectively, was this was a day of silence, Wednesday, and a chance for people to reflect and determine what are they going to do with Jesus Christ. Jesus were described in that, that day of things that he did. He used that opportunity to spend the day with some of the people that were the closest with them. 
actually some of the more, more specifically, the, some of the people uh, that, that he had healed and people that he had, had influenced. There's some debate about this, but most believe he spent the afternoon at Simon the leper's home who he had healed and arriving late that afternoon and into that evening was Lazarus' sister, Mary. So friends, people that were close to him from, from Bethany and were told kind of an interesting thing transpired is Mary pulled out, you might be familiar with this story, this super expensive jar of perfume, breaks it open and starts, about, it was worth, of a, we're told about a year's worth of wages, breaks it open and starts wiping it on Jesus's feet with her hair. Imagine this scene, this demonstration where the rest of Jerusalem is left to decide, what are you going to do with Jesus? Who do you believe he is? And this picture was a picture of somebody who had decided already who Jesus was, that he was worth everything, a year's worth wages, nothing in comparison to what Jesus was offering to them. So this extreme demonstration of devotion where we see the exact opposite happening in Jerusalem. We're told the exact opposite, the response of the religious leaders, Matthew 26 Verse three through five, then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest. Palace, that word caught my attention, whose name was Caiaphas and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. But they weren't the only ones on that day, that day of silence where Jesus doesn't choose to engage, where he gives people the opportunity to process what they're gonna do in response to this. We also see Judas make his choice. He chooses to join in and support this effort of betraying Jesus Christ. You're familiar with that story of him turning or offering to turn Jesus over to them for a low payment of 30 pieces of silver, which would have not been a, a large amount of money in that day and age. Think about this. I describe Wednesday kind of as a decision day. And really that's a description that you think about for those of us that have followed the Lord. We realize every single day is a decision day in response to Jesus. So I was kind of processing through this this week and kind of working through this in my study. One, being blessed by these different encounters, these different interactions, getting a, a glimpse of Jesus' heart for the people, realizing that every single one of us has a decision as to what we do with Jesus Christ. First, if you're somebody that's never ever bent a knee and embraced him as Lord and Savior, that's the first decision is, what am I going to do? Am I going to accept or reject his finished work on the cross? But then the second group that's probably more likely listening to this message right now is the group of people that have made a decision to embrace him as Savior. But man, every single day, they wrestle with the choice about the place that he will play in their day. Will he get priority? Will he get the, the, the attention? Will he get the focus? Will he, will he get the, uh, the, the effort to, to follow his lead and follow his direction? What is our response in every single day as to how we respond to Jesus Christ? 
My hope is, as we're leading up to Easter and this uh, Passion Week, as you describe it, that this would be a catalyst for a deeper level of commitment, which was marked by Mary that said, you know what, I'm, I'm breaking out the perfume. I'm fully in. I'm going to give my everything to him. That's what I want in my life. And that's my hope and prayer for us as a church, that that would be our response. Let me pray as we wrap up. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this chance to get in your word a little bit and consider those days before your ultimate sacrifice. They get so much attention in your word because they're not intended to be missed. These final appeals where you tried to meet people through compassion. You think about the compassion of healing in the temple. You tried to get people's attention by direct confrontation, by, by turning over tables and exposing sin. You tried to get people's a, a, attention by the intellect with stories and illustrations and parables. You tried everything, whether it was the supernatural with God himself recognizing you there in the, the temple. All of these things were designed to nudge people towards you, towards belief, towards response. My hope is, is that we haven't gotten to a place that we're so callous that these nudges no longer affect us anymore as well. My hope is that this Easter season that we're coming into, there would be a softening of hearts like never before. That there would be a commitment, that there would be a, a bending of the knee. God, we thank you so much for your grace, for your mercy, everything that was extended to us through Jesus Christ. We pray this now in his name, amen.
follow Jesus For he has said that he will bring me home And day by day I know he will renew me Until I stand with joy before the throne Again, thank you so much for being with us online. Hopefully you can be with us uh, in person on Easter. Wanted to pass on that specific invite. A great time to come together as a faith community to celebrate the risen Lord. God bless you. Have an amazing week.